The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody who's here in person, and good morning to everybody who's joining us through the live stream this morning. I'm Vanessa Southern. I'm senior minister at the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco, and up here with me today is Linda Harris, one of our late chaplains. I want to thank everybody who helped make this Sunday possible, from our tech crew, our camera people, all of our musicians, Reiko, Odalane, and Mark Sumner, and the choir, and our bell choir, Maddie Gerlach, who is going to be leading us in a solo, a beautiful solo this morning. Thanks to everybody who readied the building. Thanks to Carrie Steer Salazar, who is actually the person who decorated our chancel with the fall bouquet today. And to everybody, our ushers and greeters, including some people that I recruited as they came in today to hand you pecans, which if you didn't get when you were on your way in today, when it comes time at the end of the service for our re-envisioning of what communion means, not to give up that word, but to reclaim it on our own terms, as we are always determined to do as Unitarians and Universalists, I will um, have you raise your hand, and someone can bring you one. So for those who are allergic to nuts, you can say no, or if you have an extreme allergy, there's uh, an overflow room that you can go to where you'll be safer. Though we will also today have pecan pie after service, which is a very calculated marketing tool for all of those who need to break the habit of staying at home and get out of your slippers, although you can come in your slippers, just to know that sometimes when you come to church, not only do you get a hug, not only do you get people in three dimensions and music live and the embodied experience of community, but the embodied experience of community can be sweet and crispy and delightful. So, yeah, make your choices. And I want to thank my daughter, who I recruited to cut up pie and serve it, who, along with Thomas and Remigio, our newest member of the staff, is making all of that possible at coffee hour. I also just want to remind everybody that you're encouraged, more than encouraged, to wear your mask throughout the entire service. When we do the pecan communion, if you choose to partake, just at the moment you're invited to, you'll lift your mask up and put the pecan back in. And at coffee hour, you can take your mask off outside while you drink coffee or while you eat, but we just invite you to put it back on. These seats are blocked off. I've had an antigen test. I had a booster this week, so I'll be preaching without a mask. We have ventilation, but if you need to do things to make sure you are particularly safe or to feel safe, we ask you to make all of those choices so that that's true for you, since we can't guarantee anyone's safety in this current world. So, with all of that, I invite you to bring yourselves fully to this time and this space, and this hour we carve out together. We light our blue candle, as we have since the beginning of pandemic. A candle which is strangely tilting. I don't know what the symbolism of that is. Maybe as the world tilts back to reopening. And we light it in honor of all of you who are not with us in body, but are with us in spirit. 
until such time as we can all be together. We will hum along with our first hymn this morning, and then at the end of the service, I invite you all to sing our closing hymn together. Our first hymn of the morning is 407. We're gonna sit at the welcome table. invite you to join us in the unison chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. So if you are joining us for the first time, again, welcome, but also download the order of service if you haven't already. It's your guide to following along with us from home. And it also has a lot of opportunities to join in the life of this community, whether it's spiritual practices or study and inquiry to deepen our knowledge as we make the ethical and moral decisions we make and walk through this world, as well as opportunities to serve, to take our values and put them in action, both in binding up the broken places of the world, but also in advocacy and the work of systemic change. We invite you to join in any and all of it that calls to you, whatever calls to you at this point in your journey. And also, if you fill out our connections form, we will push into your mailbox, your email box, that is, the newsletter, the weekly flame, which is our weekly announcements, and a Sunday reminder of the live stream link with the order of service. So consider writing in the connections form so we can help you get connected here. We will, after this particular Sunday service, have again our Zoom coffee hour, like we always do, and our coffee hour in the courtyard with pumpkin pie and pie for all those who are actually here in person. And we will have also a special guest with us remotely at our coffee hour. And I wanted Linda Harris, who has many hats, only one of which is lay chaplain, to tell us a little bit about who that is. Good morning again, folks. My name is Linda Harris, and as our congregation's UU Service Committee representative, 
I would like to invite you to join Unitarian Universalists across the country in a very special tradition, the Guests at Your Table program. Every year from Thanksgiving to New Year, thousands of you use place of all ages, place Guests at Your Table boxes like this, or other special containers, baskets or whatever, on their um, dining tables or other family gathering spots. We feed the boxes daily with contributions for the inspiring work of the UUSC that it does for human rights and social justice in partnership with grassroots groups around the world. Many participants of all ages develop associated spiritual rituals to help them reflect on our UU commitment to living out our values in the wider world and the meaning of the choices we make on a daily basis about our material resources. Amid the commercial world of the holiday season, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on and share our many blessings, center in our UU values, and connect with the deeper meaning of the season. If you're with us in person today, you can get a UUSC box um, for a guest at your table as you leave the sanctuary. I'm also very excited to invite you to join us for a special one-time virtual coffee hour breakout room today, which will feature Cassandra Ryan, who is the Vice President and Chief Development Officer for the UUSC. She will share some information about the current work and vision of the UUSC and answer any questions you might have about the organization and its projects. You just need to connect with the virtual coffee hour Zoom link in the flame in the order of service. Or if you're here in person today, you can go to the Thomas Starr King Room and we'll have a video set up and a way for you to participate virtually. I hope to see you there. Thank you. Yes, there are many things we Unitarian Universalists do earnestly, but periodically we do some things excellently, and the UUSD right now is doing the work of taking our values into the world in a way that is really grounded in grassroots and accountability and is phenomenal. So I encourage you, if you don't already know about it, to think about finding out more and supporting it, as so many of us already do. I wanted to let you know about something else in the theme of supporting our values in the world. So last week, we took an additional offering, as we had the week before, for the Black Women's Health Imperative. And I wanted you to know that last week's offering brought in $425 more, bringing the total that we raised for that effort to support and promote the health and care of black women and girls and their, um, it to $1,200. So that check and a card and the acknowledgement of who the offering was taken in memory of which was Christina Hamner's mother, who had served for 42 years for Kaiser Permanente, and then due to the neglect of the healthcare system for her, died prematurely. We are speaking to our values, both the intimate values and the collective values of transforming the world in the ways that are vital, literally vital. So thank you all for that generosity. Today's endowment, today's endowment, today's offering will go to support the Rita Semmel Endowment Fund for Interfaith Work. This Tuesday, the 
Thanksgiving worship service for the Interfaith Council, which has representatives at this service from all nonprofits and houses of faith, including the Islamic Center that was vandalized last Saturday, which we, by the way, sent a check to 500, for $500 to, to support them in increasing their security system. And I drafted the press release that went out from the Interfaith Council that spoke to the um, support for that community, one of the oldest Islamic community in the city of San Francisco. All of these groups will be represented. We will have the mayor and Nancy Pelosi, all to honor the strength of that interfaith work and shared stewardship of the city. And this year to celebrate Rita Semmel, who started the Interfaith Council and who turned 100 this last week. That endowment will support the Interfaith Council in perpetuity. And what offering we take today will be presented at that service. So thank you in advance for your generosity when our offering is given and received this week. That's all our special invitations for today. Thank you all. And now, our bell anthem.
I now invite you all to join me in the covenant that we all make to each other and repeat together each week. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of a world of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July of 2019 for those lives held and those lives lost in custody at our detention camps, and for the ongoing disregard for human life at our borders that speaks again to the xenophobia and racism and greed for the three that thread a binding stranglehold through our nation's history with grave consequences. We ring our gong for the 375 transgender people globally who have been murdered already in 2021, a day of remembrance, having been held yesterday around the world. This, the deadliest year so far recorded for our trans siblings. We ring our gong for the ruling in Kenosha for a man who will be nameless in this space, acquitted. His right to bear arms included a weapon made only for mass destruction. Gone to a place and a time designated to bear witness to the sheer and basic fact that against 300 plus years of American history, whose reality repeatedly witnesses to the contrary, 
that black lives matter. And a judicial system that defended a white man's right to inflict violence more than to protect the safety of those who arrived unarmed to witness for love and justice. Finally, we ring our gong for the 7,017 deaths in the United States this last week to COVID-19. Statistically happening to more people unvaccinated and caught from those who are unvaccinated. And for the 49,266 people who died around the world from the virus this week, even as in some nations there are violent protests against mandatory vaccination and lockdown. So we strike the gong for the human heart and for the harvests of ignorance and the pain of broken covenant and the hope for redemption. We ring our gong seven times for this week of days, holding all who are suffering and all who have lost loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And the commitment that we will ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can. Spirit of life. <clears throat> In this season of giving thanks, we come out of a week that made those paying attention feel weary with the burdens of the news. Hearts and shoulders heavy. We are not perfect, this we know. 
The best moral armor against wrongdoing is, after all, the humility of knowing we are capable of wrong. The early warning system against the worst evils committed in the name of good is the voice that interrogates our own righteous minds and hearts when it picks up its sword at the door or its poisoned pen to doubt, denounce or to diminish its so-called enemies. Spirit of life, incline us, all of us, toward awareness and humility. Anchor our hearts in kindness of the kind that cannot abide any desire to humiliate or to hurt. Ground us in gratitude for what we have, not what we don't. For who we are and a sense of who we are that is so deeply rooted in a place where everyone is sacred and worthy that we don't need to try and feel superior to others. And make hope and love the pillows we rest our heads on at night. And may we wake fresh to serve the dreams they fed us in the darkness. Spirit of life, Work your magic in the world, whether it's welcoming or not to you, to heal and to awaken. And work your magic in each of us for the same. Amen.
our reading this morning is from the chapter, The Council of Pecans, from Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. The opening story she tells. Heat waves shimmer above the grasses, the air heavy and white and ringing with the buzz of cicadas. They've been shoeless all summer long, but even so, the dry September stubble of 1895 pricks their feet as they trot across the sunburned prairie, lifting their heels like grass dancers. Just the young willows whips in the faded dungarees and nothing else, their ribs showing beneath narrow brown chests as they run, they veer off toward the shady grove where the grass is soft and cool underfoot, flopping in the tall grasses with the loose-limbed abandon of boys. They rest a few moments in the shade and then spring to their feet, palming grasshoppers for bait. The fishing poles are right where they left them, leaning up against an old cottonwood. They hook the grasshoppers through the back and throw out a line while the silt of the creek bottom oozes up cool between their toes. But the water hardly moves in the paltry channel left by drought. Nothing biting but a few mosquitoes. After a bit, the prospect of a fish dinner seems as thin as their bellies beneath the faded denim pants held up with twine. Looks like nothing but biscuits and red-eye gravy for supper tonight, again. They hate to go home empty-handed and disappoint mama, but even dry biscuits fill the belly. The land here along the Canadian River, smack in the middle of Indian territory, is a rolling savanna of grass with groves of trees in the bottomland. Much of it has never been broke by a plow, and no one has a plow. The boys follow the stream from grove to grove back up toward the home place on the allotment, hoping for a deep pool somewhere finding nothing until one boy stubs his toe on something hard and hidden in the long grass. There's one and then another and then another, so many he can hardly walk. He takes up a hard green ball from the ground and whips it through the trees at his brother like a fastball and yells, pig a neck, let's bring them home. The nuts have just begun to ripen and fall and blanket the grass. The boys fill their pockets in no time and then pile up a great heap more. Pecans are good eating, but hard to carry, like trying to carry a bushel of tennis balls. They hate to go home empty-handed, but Mama would be glad for these. The heat eases a little as the sun sinks low and air settles in the bottom land, cool enough for them to run home to supper. Mama hollers at them and the boys come running, their skinny legs pumping and their underpants flashing white in the fading light. 
It looks like they're each carrying a big forked log hung like a yoke over their shoulders. They throw them down at her feet with grins of triumph. Two pairs of worn out pants tied shut with twine at the ankles and bulging with nuts. Imagine some of the traditions that we celebrate around the holidays coming up this week ahead will endure for many on this continent, in this nation. I imagine the food, the gatherings, the nationally recognized time off from work, I hope some of that will persist especially the time to do nothing but eat and be together in a country where time off to do nothing but eat and be together is increasingly an anathema and Black Friday a symbol of why and how. And it's fair to say that there is a shadow also that is lengthening over this holiday, right? and some others too, particularly those with a patriotic spin. This is the shadow cast by history and fact, cast by a fuller history, a history more bloody, more bent on extraction than harmony, and the one simply more true than the founding story of the myth 
of pilgrim and native peoples sharing the first joyful meal of harvest together, the story that a member of the Wampanoag community and nation told in an article this week in the New York Times, a story of prices paid for native scalps and people driven from their land and children taken away to schools made to forget their native ways and lands mined and extracted and sacred lands still at risk for all of that. And it is asking an increasingly demanding revision of the history that we tell together as ours, and rightly so. And maybe also asking over time a reframe of the traditions we step into in this next week. Already is. So at this moment in, in history and in living into this invitation to tell a different story, maybe one of shared geography and the weaving of stories more truly, I wanted to talk about pecans. Depending on where you're from, you may pronounce that word differently, but we won't let that get in the way of our unity this morning. We'll set that issue aside. We have a nut to talk about together. Actually, not a nut, but what's apparently technically really called a droop. But for the sake of ease, let's go with the more common misperception and call it a nut for today, if that's okay. Pecan trees are one of the most recently domesticated crops and grow best in warm climates, you probably already know, most notably in the U.S. from east to central Texas and western Louisiana and up through Oklahoma and Arkansas and Kansas and Missouri and kind of tracing up the southern part of the Mississippi River. But like many crops, you can find them where people migrated and brought their stores of pecans with them and dropped them accidentally or intentionally and hopefully into the ground, the places people made a new home. And so pecans weave into the stories of the people who made home in all the lands of this continent, native-born for generations and settlers too and all the generations to follow. I've been reading this fall, slowly making my way through Braiding Sweetgrass, which is the book by botanist professor and member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation, Robin Wall Kimmerer. The subtitle of the book is Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Early on in the book, <clears throat> Kimmerer, <clears throat> excuse me, talks about pecans and how they weave through the story of her family. You heard part of that story in the reading this morning of her grandfather and other boys stumbling on the bounty of a year when the pecans fruited, unprepared but not willing to waste a moment to harvest them, being creative. They take off their dungarees, tie them up, at the ankle of the pant leg and stuff them as full as they can and carry them home. 
That story reminded me of the time that my cousins and I stumbled on a big patch of wild raspberries while wandering the land behind where they lived, and similarly determined to bring them home, folded up our t-shirts, mine white when it all began, and piled them full and took them home, and everyone had vanilla ice cream piled high with wild raspberries for dessert that night. Who doesn't know the joy of a wild harvest when we stumble on it? Kimmerer tells more about this place that her grandfather lived and how it and the pecans wove into his story and therefore into hers when he was that boy wandering the land and the fishing holes. It was in what was still then called Indian territory. His people's land had originally been around Lake Michigan, but with colonization, they were marched at gunpoint along what came to be known as the Trail of Death because the journey would claim over half of his people by the time it was over. His family, her family, were forced to Wisconsin and then Kansas and each time removed as those lands were wanted by another group of white settlers and finally lured to Oklahoma where promises of citizenship and land ownership encouraged them to uproot again, only to be betrayed by the fine print where the unpaid taxes on such land could cause forfeit of it, but moved to a land that provided almost no means to earn the money to pay the taxes. It was while living in a shanty on that Oklahoma prairie that the boys, meandering through the landscape, stumbled on those pecans. The word pecan, Kimmerer writes, quote, is the fruit of the tree known as the pecan hickory. But it comes to English from the indigenous languages. Pecan is a nut, any nut. The hickories, black walnuts, and butternuts of our northern homelands have their own specific names. But those trees, like the homelands, were lost to my people. When they got to Kansas and later to Oklahoma, when they arrived, without a name for this new food, they just called them nuts, pecan, which became the English pecan. The pecans she and others harvested, they were full of protein and especially fat. Poor man's meat, she says, and they were poor, she says. They, they were happy for these nuts that had everything necessary to sustain life. In fact, the botanist in Kimmerer points out how the abundance of the pecan harvest the excess of what the tree showers down on the earth is its way to survive, part of its strategy, that it showers down more nuts than any local species or combination of species can eat so that some have a chance to decay and find root in the ground. The fact that when these nuts are kept dry and safe, that it can carry a family a little bit of the way through winter is also significant. It was a lifesaver 
for all kinds of species and for human beings, too. Others in our own community have analogous stories that I didn't solicit but was happy to hear. Tom Brookshire wrote about his harvests. <laughs> he wrote, my last two years of undergraduate school found me in an, an, in an inexpensive small normal school slash liberal arts college in central Georgia. I was living on a shoestring in a condemned house with a couple of other students. My campus student work stipend was $25 a week and the campus greens were edged with tall stately pecan trees, which one year in the late autumn, the grounds got carpeted with nuts. At that time, they were treated as waste by the grounds crews, so I could pick up as much as I wanted. I discovered you could sell them, and I was able to collect and sell several 20-pound boxes to a local warehouse that fall. That was a significant boost to my income, food money. I never made pecan pie, but I was also able to eat pecans for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. John Bowman, another member, wrote of how his wife, who grew up in Pennsylvania Dutch country, far from pecan groves, used to grow up eating the favorite shoe fly pie, which looks suspiciously like pecan pie without the pecans. <laughs> who knows? Funny, isn't it? If we pay attention how this tree, this fruit, this nut, shows up on our table with all kinds of stories and history behind it. As for Robin Wall Kimmer, she says, I only make pecan pie at Thanksgiving when there are plenty around to eat it. I don't even like it especially, but I want to honor that tree, feeding guests its fruit around the big table recalls the trees welcome to our ancestors when they were lonesome and tired and so far from home. It strikes me there's a piece of her family's story and our larger nation's story that's in this and worth bringing to the table as we gather this week. As we do this invitational work we are in the middle of. There's one more piece of the story of the pecan that's worth bringing to the table. Kimmerer, botanist, also points out how it is impossible for pecan trees to fruit every year. You imagine that incredible bounty and what it takes, that expenditure of resources that's required for that extravagance it drops beneath it every year. Instead, it turns out pecan trees, maybe you know this, they have to save up for a year or more in, in order to be able to do that. And were one tree to fruit and the others to choose a different year, that would actually compromise the venture, right? because there might be birds and squirrels and hogs and other local animals and humans around to inhale the whole of it. So by evolutionary miracle, 
or natural wonder. What actually happens is that across a grove, across a county, across a nation, the pecan fruits in the same year. Zimmerer writes, the trees do not act as individuals, but somehow as a collective. Exactly how they do this, we don't know yet. And here Zimmer, botanist who is also Zimmer, Potawatomi citizen, as if the two were ever separate or should be, continues, what we see is the power of unity. What happens to one happens to us all. We can starve together or feast together. All flourishing is mutual. May the richness of the layered stories of this time, told and not yet told, may it show up at our tables and be part of what takes root in us and among us this November. And the feast of pecans and other foods bring to the welcome table the truth sometimes forgotten, sometimes reclaimed, never more important that all flourishing is mutual. Amen. And now our offering, which can be laid in the baskets as you leave this morning or given electronically or however it's easiest for you. Our offering for the Rita Semmel Endowment will be given and gratefully received.
So I'm first going to ask Joan Rost, who I grabbed in the lobby, and Susie Bernahola have pecans for those of you who did not get one. I don't know if the choir got one, so one of you might need to go make sure the choir is happy and taken care of. If you can raise your hand if you didn't get one, or if you, you know, ate it in advance. Uh, it's okay. We want you to be happy. We don't know hangry people in church if we can help it. Everybody okay? I did not get one, so I'll take one, Susie, if, when you make it up this way. So I know words like communion are fraught for us as Unitarian Universalists, and I grew up with a minister who didn't believe in giving up religious words to people who had redefined them differently. As Thomas Jefferson said about Christianity itself, when he was asked if he was a Christian, which um, was uh, an act of attack and criticism of him, he said, I am a true Christian, I am a disciple of the teachings of Jesus, leaving all the miracles behind. My minister growing up, John, uh, not John Buren's, but Forest Church, they were partners, believed um, that the word God was the name for the best liberal that ever uh, we could imagine. <laughs> so communion, let's not give that up too easily. I think everybody, I haven't seen any raised hands, so you two did a beautiful job. Thank you on getting everybody taken care of on the way in. By the way, we have altar girls, in case you noticed, altar women. Um, so communion really just means, right, a deep connection that is powerful and intimate emotionally or even spiritually with another, that is, or with, with something in the universe, right? And I think what I am inviting us to do serves that word well and invites us to re-envision it. As we do all this work of re-envisioning so many things in our world, so I want you to take this pecan, and I want you to commune with it. I want you to look at it. Look at the folds, its color, feel its weight. It is 72% fat, 9% protein, 14% carbohydrates, and 4% water and filled with vitamins and minerals like manganese and zinc and iron, all that was needed to give the seed that was buried inside it life. The stuff of life. Imagine, if you will, where it came from, maybe Georgia or Texas or Oklahoma or Mexico or any of the other places that people made home and it was able to take root, like a friend or a protector. Some trees survived hickory, shuckworm, and pecan scab to fight and triumph and see another year, another decade. All of the ones that produced these nuts survived to feed another generation of squirrels and birds and mice and possum and hog and human and generate its own kind again too. Porridges are made of this and pies, they're eaten raw like this or roasted, pulled into recipes and stories as we heard this morning. They are part of landscape, and they are therefore part of memory. 
Transformed they are by the miracle of digestion into flesh and blood. Tied when they are part of the tree to sky and sun and water and rooted in the earth. They speak then to a network of mutuality and interdependence, all of this wrapped up, if you can see it, in this small half of a nut. I invite you to put the nut in your mouth. Put it in, take your mask down, and then put your mask back up. Taste it, the crunch, sweetness, earthiness, nuance. Swallow, knowing as you do so, you are beginning the merging of this nut with your own life. Knowing as you do so, that your life has been nourished by the fruit and hard work of other life, and invited in this act to bear fruit in your own life that serves and feeds the lives beyond your own life beyond your own. In that spirit, let's sing together our closing hymn. You can sing, and the words are in your order of service. Let us break bread together. I invite you to rise in body or spirit as you're able and willing.
And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.